Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Needs Some Introduction. I'm your host, Victor, and on this podcast, we break down and discuss television shows and movies you may be watching, and I recommend other related content to you, the listeners. In today's episode, I'll be breaking down the first five episodes of the second season of The Bear, available now on Hulu via their FX on Hulu brand, which doesn't really make any sense, but <laughs> there you go. Although, by the way, just we do do some streaming news here on the podcast sometimes. Some of these FX on Hulu shows are now going to start being broadcast on FX proper, specifically Reservation Dogs, which is coming back in just about a month, a little more than a month. So with these streaming companies trying to figure out their business model going forward, yet another potential strategy here for Hulu. Some really great shows, by the way, The Bear being one, Reservation Dogs, two of the best shows on TV. So as I mentioned, it'll be the first five episodes. There will be quickly another episode coming covering the back half of the season, which is actually a longer half, not really a half. Although I have seen the entire thing, and this is actually a pretty good place for this break. You could almost break this entire show into two mini seasons. And maybe that's not a bad way to do it, to watch the first five episodes, take a little pause, and then watch the rest. There is kind of a reset at episode six. But all of this is available at once. This is a binge release, just like season one was, and not the week-to-week release that we see for HBO series, for example. Honestly, I think they probably could have released a few here and then gone week-to-week. There's enough here to chew on where it didn't need to be a binge, but the binge worked so well for them last year. What a surprise this was, the season one of The Bear. And there's plenty to discuss here, just in the first five episodes. So I'm breaking it up into two parts. You will not have to wait very long for that second episode. Expect it within a day or so. As soon as I get to finish editing it, later in a week, uh, I was not able to record a recap for Silo episode nine, the penultimate episode of Silo. But that show is wrapping up this week and do absolutely expect an episode where I discuss the final two episodes there of that show. And also in that episode, expect for me to provide that list of other Black Mirror related content, shows, podcasts, movies that you may enjoy if you are a Black Mirror fan. So that'll be coming near the end of the week and stay tuned for all of that. Okay. So The Bear, by the way, here in the podcast, we do have a recap of season one, about a year old now. That's when the show was released. And what a surprise The Bear was last summer. Really, I think no one had any expectations of this show. It was dropped as a binge. Hulu probably did not know what they had on their hands. There were some early reviews that were very positive, but it could be very easy to imagine The Bear having been like one of those one season wonders, a show that is dropped in the blind, maybe gets a couple of writing nominations come Emmy nomination time, a bit of a critical darling, but forgotten by the audience. And somehow, and who knows how these things happen, this just became a word of mouth sensation. The critics obviously were all on board with this show. For season one, it definitely helped grow that audience by having this available as a binge, all available at once. And unlike, for example, Netflix that does such a great job of putting a binge show out and marketing it directly to the people who need to see it, and you have this huge wave of interest early on, and then it kind of peters off. The bear seemed to just grow and grow and grow throughout the summer, just people recommending it to each other and just falling in love with the show over and over again. I, for myself, found the tone of the show a little grating at the beginning. It obviously is very much this very high-stress restaurant 
environment that's being depicted. And for me, I found it to be a little grating, obviously intentionally trying to ratchet up the tension. In many ways, it felt too artificial. And it's really a good thing for me, for my personal taste, that this was available to binge all at once because over the course of watching those episodes, eight of them in the first season, and also very short episodes, so a very quick binge, by the way, I really was won over. And I really saw that there was a construction and intention to the tone and the pace of the show. So I really appreciated that something that maybe I wasn't vibing with specifically had all been designed in that way. So that first season of the show had no expectations, was a surprise to everybody. And I've said this before, but it is usually a very easy metaphor that you can watch pretty much any movie or TV series. And if you want to have a very quick thesis statement for your term paper or whatever it is to any students out there, you could basically say that every movie and every TV show is basically a metaphor about the making of that TV show or movie. And I think that is absolutely the case for The Bear, where the first season was a very scrappy, unexpected series with a lot of energy and a lot of experimentation and really going for it in this one very small, specific tone. Just It really wanted to make you the best deli sandwich you can eat. And those were the expectations of The Bear. And it's like, wow, that was a great deli sandwich. And that's basically what we got with season one of The Bear. And if you want to extend that metaphor, now this is the pressure that there is with season two of The Bear. Like, how is it going to be bigger? How is it going to be artisanal after that surprise first season? And that, non, not ironically at all, but intentionally, is the focus of the second season of the show itself. Another analogy I'll make, by the way, for this show in a positive way is season two of Ted Lasso. With season one of Ted Lasso, I also was not really vibing on that show after being told how great it was. But over the course of that first season... It was relatively low stakes, but was so earnest and positive about what it was trying to do. It really won me over. And I was a big proponent of season one. Whereas season two of Ted Lasso, the episodes got longer. It got more ambitious. It got kind of bloated. It didn't know how to tell its story anymore. It was still trying to have what made season one of Ted Lasso good. And then just kind of cobbled on this rom-com, not even a rom-com, like a soap opera plot. And it, it, it's a workplace story. It, And by the way, a lot of these things you can say could absolutely have been the traps that Bear Season 2 would fall into. They try to make it into a workplace comedy, which obviously to some extent it is, by the way. And they try to do too much, too much melodrama, too much raising of the stakes from week to week, which once again, the Bear Season 2 absolutely does. But I'm happy to say that Season 2 of the Bear is a nearly complete success even as I, and I'll point these out, even as I think that there are some significant missteps in this season along the way, but overall, like what an incredible and moving, uplifting uh, show this, this is for so many reasons. Before I get into the breakdown, I will break down quickly each one of these episodes and give you my opinions of each one. I do very much like the fact that the show allows itself to have a variable rhythm here. From episode to episode, you really feel that the show could turn into something else. And that's kind of exciting to feel that it's not just that one note, constant pressure, constant stress. The show very much opens on that note, but it really at times allows itself to like take a breath and really put you into a new situation and just let you spend time with these individual characters. And what a great way to expand this story and enrich these characters by simply just spending more time with these side characters. And honestly, those are my favorite. Uh, moments in the show. Every time we kind of flesh out these side characters in a little more detail, I just loved all of that. 
But there are so many themes here that get explored. It's the idea of the family you find and how making something collectively, working on something can fill these voids that we have, these needs. It's something we see. All these damaged characters have some familial hole, some people missing their entire family, some people missing a parent, some people having a bad relationship with a parent. Somehow they have made a family in this restaurant and how striving and building something together continuously refreshes their relationships with each other and gives them the sense of fulfillment. And it does ask some of these big questions. If you really believe in what you're trying to build, taking your ego out of it so that you can achieve something greater, how that has its own fulfillment. And it's just a different way to experience yourself in the world. This is like actually a very big theme, but it's something that is very necessary to run a restaurant or run a business or make a movie or a TV series. If that was all it was, just a metaphor for the creative process, then even that would be incredibly valuable. But I think it's also about being a parent. It's also about being in the family and basically saying, sometimes I can't be the star so that we can be the stars. And that is, I think, a universal message and it's powerful here in this show. So as I mentioned before, here's the first five episodes. And honestly, you could almost watch these five episodes, take a pause, and then watch the next five. It's really, you're getting two seasons for the price of one. <laughs> All for the better, by the way. You know, um, I'm trying really hard to be on board with all of this new shit, cousin. I'm, uh, I'm reading a lot. I'm trying to learn about who am I to my history. So in one of these books, there's this dude who's got, like, no skills, no personality, nothing. All he does is watch his trains. Watch his trains do what? Watches him be trained. And he's got this group of friends that he's had since he's a little kid. You know? And they're all the shit. And they're outgrowing them. Like, one's like a sick athlete, one's a genius, this other one's nasty on the keys, then this other one, she's got like charisma like a motherfucker. And one day, out of the blue, boom. They drop his ass. They just cut that motherfucker off. Why do they do that? Because he's got no purpose. The first episode is called Beef. Now, this is written and directed by Christopher Storer, who's one of the creators of the show, or the primary creator of the show. Importantly here, we open with Marcus, played by Lionel Boyce. Not with Carmi, but with one of these side characters, as I mentioned before. He's with his com comatose mother, and as I mentioned throughout the season, this is a big theme. All these people have fraught relationships with someone in their family or have no family relationship anymore at all. And they have made a safe place for themselves in this world through striving to be the best they can at this particular industry. But I think, once again, I think we can all relate to that regardless of what we're trying to strive to achieve in our lives. It is pretty well known in the culinary world and of course in Hollywood as well that there's oftentimes these folks have very damaged relationships with their families, currently or formerly were addicts of some kind, and that in fully committing themselves to this lifestyle of creation, it is their own lifeline. It's the way that they overcome their insecurities, their weaknesses, their fears, their addictions. And I think that's why 
many people in Hollywood, for example, are friends with chefs and really have a lot in common with them. One more touch point here is the movie Chef itself, John Favreau's film, where of course he plays a chef and a direct metaphor for his career in Hollywood. We get our first needle drop of the season after that quiet moment between Marcus and his comatose mother. And it's Bruce Hornsby, the show goes on. And what a great needle drop here, by the way. One of these forgotten artists of the 80s. Everybody pretty much probably only knows Bruce Hornsby for one song. That's just the way it is. But here's this deep cut. The show goes on and of course serves two purposes. It's about the show goes on. Issues in your personal life, your own personal dramas. There's the fact that the restaurant could go bankrupt tomorrow. They may not be able to pull this off, but the show goes on. The world just revolves. There's nothing you can do about it. And simultaneously, we get to have this corollary of Bruce Hornsby, this artist that is pretty much a forgotten artist, and like a surprise that you're like, oh, wow, look at this song. I wasn't expecting this at all, which of course is a metaphor for this whole show itself. I wasn't expecting this, but boy, this is much better <laughs> than I could have anticipated. In the show itself, we see uh, Sugar gets a much bigger role here, Abby Elliott playing Sugar, a character that I thought was kind of underserved in season one. She really gets to blossom here. It's great to get good actors so that they can fill out these roles when they need to. They're throwing together the schedule of expenses, all the licensing, all the logistics, contractors that need to be coordinated, the bills that have to get paid, paperwork that has to be has to be filed and submitted. And Sydney says, great, Sugar, you're the project manager. And she indeed becomes essential to the operation of this restaurant. Meanwhile, Richie, played by Eben Moss Bachrach, is having an existential crisis. As I mentioned before, check out, we have a season one recap here in the feed. And we speculated that Richie's insecurities are the reason for his behavior. He's just self-sabotaging and oftentimes sabotaging others purely because he deep down inside does not know what his purpose is. Why is he even here? He's He doesn't even know what role he's supposed to fill. And he definitely doesn't want to be there just because people feel bad for him if they cut him out. And he's having this moment of crisis and says it directly. All those things that we speculated on last season, he just doesn't know how he fits in anywhere, ever. Other things that happen here, of course, we found Mike's tomato can money from last season. It's about $300,000, almost all of the money that he borrowed from Uncle Jimmy. But they need even more. They have to pay these salaries. You really wouldn't have to, but I guess you can't lose staff at this point. You know what? Maybe they do have to pay those salaries. Regardless, this is more of a family than it is of anything else. So they're going to pay those salaries regardless of whether they need to or not. Fix up the restaurant. There's going to be a lot of logistics and contractors and specialists that need to be paid along the way, plus all the supplies and the food. And margins are not great in restaurants anyway. So they need $500,000. They tell Jimmy they found the money, that, and but you're not getting it back. We actually want you to give us even more. But he's on board because what they tell him is we will get to break even in 18 months or you get the restaurant, whatever it is at that point. But more importantly, you get the building. This actually seems like a pretty good deal because you think that the building itself, the real estate, is probably worth way more than the $800,000 he would be putting in. And of course, if the restaurant's even marginally profitable at that point, that's profitable as well. The restaurant could be something they could sell off as an asset. And if it's losing money, the real estate will still get you the break even. Not a bad deal for Jimmy. So he says, yes. And with the plan in place, everyone kind of heads back to their corners. But by the end of the episode, they're all back at the restaurant again saying, you know what? Six months to open and 18 months to break even is not possible. We need to open sooner. 
we're going to cut that in half. They're opening it in three months and they rewrite everything. And we are reminded over and over again in this episode, by the way, that every second counts. So this episode one is very much like an extension of season one. And they're trying to gin up the energy levels here, especially at the end with the same musical cue that they had in season one. But this show will prove itself out to have multiple different speeds in this second season. But oh, there will be stressful episodes. Oh my God, there is an episode, (laughs) episode six, which I'm going to just tease here, which is like one of the most (laughs) anxiety-inducing episodes of a show you'll ever watch. You okay? It's weird, you know? I think I like, I don't know. I just realized I'm like older than her now, you know? But just as wonderful. Episode number two, Pasta. This one directed by Christopher Storr yet again, but written by Joanna Callow, who's one of the other showrunners, I believe. So Sydney has invited Tina to become her sous chef. Tina, what a reformation of this character, just this thorn in her side all of season one. And now they've become best friends practically on the show. And she was such a one-note caricature in season one and really gets to blossom here. And she gets this incredible moment all to herself later in this season. The restaurant's going to be remodeled. I mean, honestly, torn down. (laughs) It's worse and worse episode to episode, the amount that they've stripped down this restaurant by the time they get finished. But Sydney's decided to send Tina and Ibrahim to culinary school to improve their skills Meanwhile, Sydney and Carmi are at, at Carmi's apartment trying to figure out the menu. They do a lot of bonding here. And we also meet Sydney's dad, played by Robert Townsend. Where has this guy been? What a great performance. I have not seen him in anything in, in decades, I think, at this point. And it's just this beautiful and subtle fatherly performance where he has this concern and this just open-hearted care for his daughter, but of course is worried at the same time about her decisions here, whether this business is sustainable or not, and is worried once again about who she's partnering with. This is a motif that will be played out over and over again, especially in the first half of this season. So she doesn't have an absent dad. She has an absent mom. We find out that her mom died while she was much younger. But interestingly, she did not share this with Carmi earlier in the episode. Meanwhile, also, Sugar is telling a plumber, I think she has on um, an app, about her pregnancy and not confiding that big secret with her family. Of course, this is a very dysfunctional family, and boy, wait till we meet mom. We'll know why she has so many concerns about becoming a mother herself. And Carmi at a bodega, I believe, or at the supermarket, runs into Claire, and they make big, soft blue eyes at each other. (laughs) These two blue-eyed people, they're going to have beautiful blue-eyed children, if, if these crazy kids can work it out. Claire, played by Molly Gordon. It's very important, I think, this scene where they're meeting at the grocery store is butted up right against the conversation with Sydney and her dad about whether you can trust your partner or not. This is going to be a big ongoing motif in this entire season, this idea of can you have a work-life balance? And if not, if you are in some ways prioritizing your personal improvement, do you now let down all these other people who are relying on you? And I do have an opinion as to where the show lands on that, but I'll probably leave that for final thoughts when we get to the very end of the season. I think when I was a kid, um, anything that would give me any sort of excitement or, or, or amusement or enjoyment, uh, it always got kind of fucked. 
And, you know, I, I don't think my family meant to ruin it or anything like that. You know, I, I don't think they did it on purpose, but I, I think sometimes they just, they try too hard. You know, or they'd make promises that they weren't able to keep. I have to remind myself to breathe sometimes. I, um, I have to remind myself to, uh, to be present, you know. Remind myself that the sky is not falling, that um, there is no other shoe, which is incredibly difficult because there's always another shoe. <laughs> I don't know, I think, um, you know, maybe if I could provide more, more, more amusement or, or enjoyment for myself, it would be easier to, uh, to provide for others, you know. Episode three is called Sunday. This one directed by Joanna Callow and written by Karen Joseph Adcock and Catherine Shatina. Now, this one we open with Carmi at an AA meeting, something that we've seen before on the show back in season one. And what a great moment they give Jeremy Allen White here. I do love the way that he explains the trauma he has with his family. The fact that when he was younger, everything that he was passionate about, everything he loved would always end up getting ruined by his family, but it wasn't intentional. They were trying to do the right thing, but they would overpromise and underdeliver. They would get so overinvested in what was happening that it just ended up making the whole experience toxic. So he just got used to like not having anything. And this is him wondering about whether he can have this relationship with Claire. Does wonder if maybe allowing himself to have fun and not being afraid that another shoe is always going to drop, that maybe that would be good for him, but maybe that would also be good for the business as well. And once again, maybe the biggest theme of this whole season. Meanwhile, Sydney is freaking out. COVID has entered the world of the series. She has seen that even well-established, successful Chicago restaurants are going under post-COVID, and how, she must be thinking, how can she possibly make this work when these well-established, well-honed, perfectly manned institutions all over the city are going bankrupt and going out of business? How are they going to just be a startup and suddenly be successful? It's a pipe dream, but hope springs eternal. It's the human condition. You keep trying, even if you think you're going to fail. Over the course of the episode, Carmi and Sid decide to send Marcus to Copenhagen, He's supposed to go there, train under another pastry chef, and come back with three new desserts for the menu. Meanwhile, Sydney goes on a food odyssey, eating all over town, trying to come up with new ideas for the new menu. She and Carmi are not having a lot of luck with this. She very importantly keeps screwing up the sauce for her proposed dish with cherry vinegar, I believe. And along this journey, first of all, she can't possibly be eating all this food. I assume she can only have one or two bites of each one of these things because she is eating the entire day. But the sequence of events also plays another part in telling this story here. A reoccurring theme, no matter who she's talking to, make sure you're in business with a partner you can trust. And she is starting to have her doubts about Carmi. To that point, Carmi was supposed to be on this eating date with her, but instead he's been sidetracked by a call from Claire and running an errand with her, which of course has turned into a date. Interestingly, by the way, at the end of episode one, when he gave her his number, it was pretty obvious that he was making up the last few digits. 
but she tracked him down anyway, because of course they know all the same people. Fack had given her his number. Also circling back to Sydney's trip through Chicago's restaurants, I assume a lot of these people she's speaking to are actual celebrities in the Chicago restaurant world. And there are many cameos, much more high profile ones than these by the end of the season. By the time night has fallen, they regroup at the restaurant. Sydney is shocked to find that the restaurant at this point has been completely gutted. They have found mold. Very funny sequence there with the mold. <laughs> you know, it's getting pretty. There's been a lot of buzz around mold recently. <laughs> they found wood rot. They found everything. I mean, honestly, those old restaurants, you get under the hood, it's going to be pretty scary under there. And she's angry. After this day of being told you have to trust your partner, Carmine goes, oh, you wanted me to tell you that we were going to tear everything down because we had to tear everything down because simply there was no choice to be made. And she's like, yes, no matter what you were supposed to tell me. And she storms off. And of course, she is stressed out. She reaches out to one of the chefs that she spoke to over the course of the day and says, hey, do you still have that offer for me to cook in your kitchen? She needs to cook to release some stress. And she screws up the sauce again. So if she was trying to get her mind off of the stress of the situation, it's not working. No, I think at a certain stage, it becomes less about skill and it's more about being open. Open? Yeah, to, to the world, to yourself, to other people. You know, most of the incredible things I've eaten haven't been because the skill level is exceptionally high or there's loads of mad, fancy techniques. It's because it's been really inspired. Yeah. I like that. You can spend all the time in the world in here, but if you don't spend enough time out there, right. you know? Helps have good people around you too. So was it worth it? The time you put in? Ask me tomorrow. Okay, episode number four called Honeydew. This one directed by Rami Youssef and written by Stacey Osei Kafour. By the way, I have never seen Rami, which I think is on Hulu, but definitely a blind spot for me that I have to fill at some point. I've heard very, very good things about the sitcom Rami, a semi-autobiographical series from Rami Youssef. Okay, we are reminded, episode four, that we are seven weeks out now, the new accelerated timeline. Five weeks have expired since episode one. Sugar has been dealing with all the paperwork. It's completely overwhelming. And she finally needs to tell Carmi that she's pregnant. There's this very comedic scene where just as she announces that she's pregnant, the last remaining wall of the office collapses. And everybody's like, congratulations, I knew it. <laughs> This is how everyone finds out that she's pregnant. Marcus is indeed heading off to Copenhagen. He says goodbye to his mom, touchingly. She's still comatose. And he gets out there and it's beautiful. It's just an adventure for him. He's living on a boat, which is both strange and somewhat romantic, feeding a potentially non-existent cat. And when he shows up at the pastry or bakery, pastry, not sure how you would describe this place, Will Poulter, the British actor, is the baker. By the way, Will Poulter is now completely jacked. <laughs> We've already seen this. If you've seen Guardians of the Galaxy 3, you've already got a preview of his jacked physique. And I have to say that maybe not in this scene, especially because the interactions between Poulter's character and Marcus are so terrific. But some of these cameos here become more and more high profile as the show progresses. We're a little distracting. Just want to call that out. But on the other hand, this is the first time the season really 
plays with the tempo here, really slows things down. And I absolutely love this episode. I love this episode. Everything between Marcus and this baker and how they're talking about their own personal backstories and how they came to this moment and what baking this transformation of ingredients into food and how it just is this thing that they almost accidentally fell into, but how it is so fulfilling to them now is just like so incredibly well done. And there's this great moment. The baker has told Marcus that that he needs to get out there and experience the world, that that is what you bring to the food. So there is this duality, right? You see Carmi's concern that having an outside life might potentially damage the thing he's trying to create. And you have Poulter's character telling Marcus that you need to have that outside to bring to your food. There's no this without that. So it's a very interesting dichotomy of ideas. And to that point, Marcus goes out and experiences the city. And on his way home that night, he rescues someone who's fallen into one of these soft fences that you put along rivers that you've probably seen like in bicycle races or skiing events. In being in the world, he's basically rescued this person. And it really makes this point so subtly. Just another grace note in this really great episode. We have cut occasionally back to the chaos in the restaurant as a counterpoint to this idyllic situation that Marcus has found himself in. And the episode ends, we see him FaceTiming with Sydney and telling her about his experiences there out in Copenhagen. And you can also plainly see that he is starting to have feelings for her. By the way, she's been reading Coach K's autobiography throughout the course of this season. And little by little, she's going to buy in which uh, on Coach K's um, philosophy. It becomes actually a pretty big part of the show by the time we get to the end of the season. Another side note here before we move on to the last episode we'll be covering here, episode five, uh, maybe my favorite this song discovery for this episode, and there's so many. By the way, season one, each episode ended on this beautiful, perfect needle drop. Like every episode had pretty much one song, which was just perfect in each episode. This one, wall-to-wall music, and hey, I am completely here for it. I love it. I love all these musical discoveries. Oh, and I forgot to mention, if you're trying to track down these songs... I have a playlist in the show notes. Check out the show notes. I have found a playlist, not my playlist, but an existing one. Oftentimes these playlists say that this is the bear playlist. It's not really correct. I found a real one that has the actual songs, mostly in sequence as they appear in the season. And I'll include that link in the show notes. So check it out there if you want to catch up on this music. I definitely have added some of these songs to my playlists. But this song, Goodbye Girl by Squeeze what a great song and a total blonde spot for me. I do like some Squeeze songs. I'm not fully aware of their entire discography, but I love this Goodbye Girl song, a song I had not heard before. And if he ever leaves you blue, just remember I love you and I'll be there before the next teardrop falls. I'll be there before the next teardrop falls. Episode number five, Pop, directed by Joanna Callow, written by Sophia Levitsky-Whites. And this episode opens with Sydney and Tina at the restaurant Sydney is in a manic mode here. She's apparently been cooking all day. It's 1.30 in the morning. She's lost track of time. 
Tina's incredibly <laughs> understanding here, desperately trying to be her sous chef. And I can only imagine what a journey she's been on from season one, where she was Sydney's biggest villain. And here trying to support her, trying to keep her calm and telling her what she needs to hear, very subtly being like, I think the menu's too much. <laughs> Sydney accepting this actually, hearing it and accepting it. So they have a good chemistry going here. Meanwhile, we've noticed that Ibrahim has not returned to the culinary program. And we see these two diverging paths here. Tina has really focused on the work, gotten over her insecurities, and really is enjoying the culinary school while Ibrahim really feels intimidated and out of place and has just been sitting in the park apparently and smoking cigars. And she's concerned, Tina is. Meanwhile, we see that Carmi's obsessed with being able to shave off two seconds while moving from one station to the next and trying to think about the most efficient way to lay out the stations in the kitchen. Every second counts. But maybe this is not what you're supposed to be prioritizing. I've never run a restaurant, so I don't know how important this actually is, but he does seem to be very, very concerned about it. Jimmy shows up. He's concerned too. He thinks that people are not focusing on the right things. I love as Jimmy just lays out everything that they're doing right and everything he's worried about. And every time Richie tries to jump in, he's just like, shut the fuck up, shut the fuck up. <laughs> There's a little satire here, maybe not only of the experience we've probably all had to some extent of trying to get the contractors to show up. This guy has to finish before that guy can finish, but this guy can only be here for four hours. You got to try to keep him there longer without him charging you too much because the other guy hasn't shown up yet and all of the nightmare of laying this all out. I'm not that familiar with the logistics of making a television show, for example, but given all these different unions, <laughs> maybe a metaphor there as well for the experience of that. But I mean, we've all had similar experiences to some extent throughout our lives. And I love that one guy's making a sandwich, <laughs> the other guy's being distracted by facts. Some pretty funny interactions here. Importantly, early in the episode, Tina needs a knife to go to class and she gets to use Carmi's knife. So this is really her ascension here in this episode. And we have another one of these incredible magic moments with these side characters. First, she gets to cut with Carmi's knife, really appreciates it, loves every minute of that experience. And then at the end of class, some of the younger girls say, hey, why don't you come out with us? Come get a drink. We're going out for karaoke. And Tina goes and sings this karaoke. This song, once again, another song I'm not familiar with that has an English and a Spanish verse. And she just knocks the audience, us as the audience, knocks our socks off. But also right there in the show, the students and the other patrons totally surprised by her rendition of the song. And you really see her like being surprised by the appreciation she gets from the audience. Just a gift we have in this perfect moment in this show of seeing someone becoming, like really just seeing someone working at something and doing the work, and then suddenly just discovering this confidence and this skill that you know we weren't aware of. So it's just allowing us to see somebody in a different light, which I always appreciate, by the way, this actress as well as this character. And simultaneously, just being able to see someone becoming something else right before your eyes. And it's really just a beautiful moment. She didn't have this confidence, just season one. This is what it's all about, is how she is allowing herself to be these things. Meanwhile, Claire and Carmi have been on this very entertaining day-long date. I mean, this is another thing that we've all experienced at some point, You know, coming back to your hometown, ending up at a party where everybody is acting like they're in high school, but they're all in their 30s, and you're like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> if you've had that experience, I think you can appreciate what is happening here in this scene. And Claire and Carmi seem to be a really good couple. 
Carm decides to finally show Claire the restaurant. Come see my restaurant. Not only does he go to show a completely bare, <laughs> stripped down, non-existent restaurant. On top of that, all these tensions that have been brewing in the background throughout this first half season are boiling over and everyone's at each other's throat. We see, for example, Richie, whose insecurities are getting in the way of everything. He screwed everything up by trying to steal electricity from the neighbor building. And Carmi kicks him out. And Sydney, angry and more insecure about Carmi than ever before. They were supposed to review the menu. She's figuring this out on her own. Carmi's out with his girlfriend. But just at this moment where they seem like the restaurant itself is maybe the furthest it's ever been to being successful, we have this great moment where Carmi and Claire finally kiss. Great musical choice here, by the way. I love the replacements. Can't hardly wait as a choice here. And that brings us to this great mid-season of just one great episode after another. The restaurant is fully in motion now. The stakes have never been higher. It seems like they are less and less likely to get this thing done. And simultaneously, all these individuals on their individual journeys are becoming the best versions of, of themselves. You see that Carmi finally building this restaurant and simultaneously falling in love. Sydney stressed out by all the responsibilities on her back, the closest she's ever been to fulfilling this fantasy of getting that star and opening a restaurant. Sugar becoming the the combination CFO, COO of this enterprise. Tina, of course, and Marcus, of course, really finding his confidence as a chef as well. Not so great at this moment anyway for Ibrahim and definitely not Richie at his best. But spoiler alert, Richie gets the best episode of the season. He gets his episode all to himself. And it is, in my opinion, the best episode of this season. But that is a conversation for the next episode, which I hopefully will have in this feed to you within the next day or two. Subscribe so you know when those episodes become available. Drop us an email. We'd love to hear your feedback. Need some introduction at gmail.com. And as I mentioned, stay tuned later this week, the finale of Silo, along with those Black Mirror recommendations I've been teasing for the past couple of weeks. You won't have to wait too long because I know you can hardly wait. Hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll talk to you soon. I can't wait.